Let's go um, right now and turn our, in our Bibles to Ephesians. If there is any uh, book in the Bible that focuses on the church, it is the beautiful epistle or letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, if you really want to know a little bit more about um, the church and what God is calling the church to be and do, uh, this is a great book to study. It is, however, a book that's really compact and not so easy to read because Paul sort of follows that idea that he only has a little bit of space, so he sort of packs every, everything in, <laughs> almost like Fibber McGee's closet. You open the door and everything comes spilling out. Now, you young folk have no idea what I just said, but that's okay. Uh, look up Fibber McGee's closet. But at any rate, when we open up the door of this, this letter, so much is there, good stuff. Um, it's not something we've just jammed away to forget in a closet. It's something that God wants us to use and grow with and understand uh, to understand our faith and to understand what God is calling us to be at church. So I want to start reading. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 3. Well, we can start from verse 1 in chapter 1, and then we'll read down to verse 14. So you follow along as I read, uh, if you'll take the Bibles that you bring every Sunday to church. This is what Paul wrote to this group of believers at Ephesus. He starts off saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, in other words, the church, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him, being the foundation, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. And then next is the focus of our sermon, our study this morning. In him we have redemption. In other words, he means in the beloved one. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance upon the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And may God bless the reading of his word today. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we first begin by affirming your presence here. We know that you are here. And the Bible tells us that whenever two or more are gathered together, Jesus is here and you're here and the Holy Spirit's here. And we come and affirm that presence. We, 
We don't have to beg you to come. We don't have to plead. We don't have to do certain things. But we know in the Bible that you are where your people are. And we want to be your people. And we are your people. We've given our hearts to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And so we affirm your presence. So what we do here, we ask that it will be to your glory and honor. And that it will lift up your hallowedness, your holiness, your, your wonderfulness. And the fact that you gave us Jesus to die on the cross and the Holy Spirit teaches us that. And we come affirming your presence. But we also come to adore you. It is a thing that we remember that you did this for us and we love you for it. And we come loving you, God, to worship you and to remember that it was your divine plan, as Paul told us here in this scripture, that you did it for us so that we might be found faithful servants and grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask especially as we adore you, Father, that the Holy Spirit might open our hearts to this message, that we can come and enjoy you and lift up our hearts to thank you and adore you for all that you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The purpose of this message is to remind us as a church, a family of believers, uh, an essential church, at least we hope so, that we have a message, that we have something to offer the world. The world does not always want to hear it. They don't often understand it. But that's what Jesus has called us to do in the Great Commission. And if you remember last Sunday, we talked about teaching, uh, baptizing and teaching, teaching all the things that Jesus commanded and baptizing, marking or setting us apart as servants of God. So this Sunday morning, I felt led to take a look at the beginning of the book of Ephesus. I've already said that Ephesus is a very tremendous, wonderful book on the church and the, the theology of the church, the idea of the church, the purpose of the church. But I wanted to take a look at it in, in light of the question that what we can offer to the community in the world. What do we have in Jesus? Some people might not believe that there is a God. And we have to say, well, if there is a God, what do you think about his character would be? Would he be a good God or would he be a bad God? Some people have bad gods. There are gods out there that are claimed to be bad ones you don't want to mess with. But the Christian belief is, and the Bible teaches, that our God is loving and caring and merciful and graceful. And because he's a good God, he created us in his image. And the interesting thing about the Bible, if we talk about if there is a God, the character of God is that he wants to relate to us. He didn't just start that first domino that eventually led to whatever and then sit back in a rocking chair and watched us. There's a song by a prominent uh, diva, if you want to call her that, saying he's watching from a distance, right? And we don't think God is doing that. We think God is presence. That's why we affirmed his presence here. That we adore him and we affirm it. Every time we come to church, we, we come believing and through the power of the Holy Spirit actually sensing and knowing that God is here with us. That Jesus Christ is present in our life. The end of the Great Commission said, look, I'm with you always. Remember, he said, I got all the power and I'm with you always. So if God did, if he's a good God, if he does exist and he created the world, we believe he created us in his image because he loved us. 
And he made us in his image so he could relate to us. I mean, it's not like God is a, a, you know, a, a, a round hole and we're a square peg. God wanted us to know him, to come to realize his love for us. In fact, the creation account tells us how he came to walk in the garden, coolness of the garden, to meet Adam and Eve. So if God does exist, and if he's good, and, and if he did create us, and if he did create us to have a relationship what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God? Because the Old Testament tells us that they chose self-centered sinfulness instead of God. Now, they had a little bit of a uh, help by the serpent. So if any animal talks to you, that's bad. <laughs> don't, don't really listen, right? So the serpent said, well, did God really say that? Well, in a way, the serpent knew the character of God, that he would be merciful and loving, that he would do something to redeem his creation. And we find out that even from the very beginning, it begins to be a kind of a thing in the Bible where you sense that God is going to do something. He's not going to leave the world alone. He's not going to leave us in bondage to our sin. He's not going to leave us without his mercy and his grace. But he made us in a marvelous kind of way to have a mind, to think for ourselves, and to make a choice. And Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And you know, we do that too because we start looking at ourselves and we forget that God is there, that God made us in his image, that he loves us. And we start to ignore God and think that all there is in the world is what we do. And man is very, very good at thinking that he's the measure of all things, which he isn't. In fact, science is a great thing, but science is a problem when they start to assume that man is the measure of all things. Science has no way, scientifically, empirically, to test whether God exists. And they really don't have any way to empirically, and by that I mean experimentally with, with all kinds of you know, chemicals and experiments to test, that we have this need in our heart, a void in our heart, to recognize that God does exist, that God made us, and that God's a good God, and God would not leave us hanging high and dry. So the church believes this, that God made us, that we sinned against him, and that God made it possible for us to be redeemed, brought back into his fellowship. And he did it precisely from the very beginning of time by the plan and the mystery of the gospel that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. So somebody might say in the world out there, okay, all right, you say Jesus is all that important. So what is this Jesus all about? What, what's, his, what's his purpose? What, what's his value? I mean, we, we always go and talk about the little baby in the manger and then Christians yelp about him being resurrected on the third day. But what is Jesus? What do we have in Jesus? Or really, what do you have in Jesus? And the question the church has to be willing to answer always with great joy, great enthusiasm, and great purpose we have to answer the question, what do we have in Jesus? Because that's what Jesus called us to do in the Great Commission. Part of our teaching is to teach exactly what 
I just said. If there was a God, God created us. He, he, was, he was a good God. He created us. He loved us. And he made it possible for us to be reinstated and to come back again into his kingdom, into his family. And he did that all in Jesus. So what do we have in Jesus? And this becomes the center and the focus of our testimony. If somebody says to you, why are you a Christian? What would you say? Uh, well, because my parents took me to church. Well, no. I mean, I, I took my son, put him in the garage, but he wasn't a car. He didn't become a car. Right? You know, when he was born, I thought maybe I'd get a Mercedes Benz out of it, you know, or at least a Chevy, you know. But I didn't get anything because he's not a car. You don't become a Christian by walking into a church. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that you have had a life-changing experience with the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. That's our gospel. That's our testimony. And we have to be able to elucidate that and understand it and tell others. That's the essence of the so-called apologetics movement. It's the essence of our witnessing. It's the essence of who we are as a church. We need to be able, as God, as Jesus called us in the Great Commission, to be able to give an answer for these things because we are called to help make disciples and baptize them and teach them. Those are the things we're called to do. So the question comes to us today, what do we have in Jesus? And it is Paul, interestingly enough, who gives us the answer in the beginning of the letter to Ephesus. So I want to share with you four things that we have. You start with number one, redemption. Now, the point is that Paul helps us out, and it's not so easy to see this in the, in the, in the uh, Christian Standard Bible or some of the other Bibles. It's a little better in the King James because there are four statements that are made that begin with the phrase, in whom, or in our Christian Standard Bible says in him because it's implied who the him is or whom it is. It's the beloved in verse um, 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, and that's all the, the, the beginning of that God chose us to be before the foundation of the world. That, and Paul's talking to the church here. I'm not going to get into the great details about predestination because recently people have torn this out of the context and talked all about it. Paul's talking to the church, and we are predestined as a church to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. But he's talking here in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, God is so wonderful in his mercy and his love that he lavished on us, that he gave to us. Think about this. God loved you so much. And it becomes rather trite to say this, but this is the important thing. God loved us so much that he lavished on us. Do you ever think of God lavishing on us Jesus? He lavished on us in the beloved one, his grace. Through Jesus, we just have this overwhelming, overabounding grace and mercy. We didn't deserve it. I've taught students, you know, in classes, and they'll either ask me for a mulligan or they'll ask me for mercy and grace as they turn in their papers and don't deserve it, but, you know, sometimes I give it. The point is God's mercy is shown on us because he's lavished that mercy on us in Jesus. So what do we have in Jesus? Well, first of all, we have redemption. It starts off in verse 7 
in whom or in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now, the gist of what Paul is saying here is that Jesus isn't an accident. The death of Jesus on the cross wasn't coincidental. Or it wasn't, um, yeah, that it wasn't something that just happened and it was like plan C or something. What Paul is saying is that God gave us redemption. The word redemption means literally to buy back or make something free. Or make someone free. There was a lot of people who were debt slaves. And you could, you could buy back your, your slavery by paying your debt. Our debt is to God because we sinned against him. But God made it possible for us to be redeemed through his blood. Whose blood? The blood of Jesus on the cross. That's why we make a big deal about his blood. It ties it back to the Jewish faith. And the covenant God made with his people at, at uh, Sinai that, that they sacrificed the innocent animals for to give as part of their worship, to give to God. And without the shedding of blood, we learn there's no forgiveness or remission of sins. And I know I'm talking about big terms up here, these big theological terms, and I want to keep it simple. I want to be able to explain this. The sacrificial system wasn't because God was a weird God who liked the smell or aroma of blood or barbecue. He gave the Jewish people that because it symbolized what he was going to do in Christ Jesus. Jesus became that perfect sacrifice. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us about that. He was the only sacrifice that could pay the penalty. The redemption we needed... The ransom that we needed couldn't be done by all the money in the world. It couldn't be done by the smartest person in the world. It couldn't be done by anything else other than the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. And Paul says in him, this beloved one, we have, we have been freed. We've, he paid the penalty for us. He bought us back. He made us free through his blood. And the blood was the forgiveness of our trespasses. The trespasses or sin or uh, what we did, offenses, the wrongdoing, the violation of moral standards. Jesus paid the penalty for all those trespasses. And this was according to the, the depth of God's grace. This is God's grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. See, God had this plan from the very beginning. You know that, that uh, phrase that God has, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life that's called the four spiritual laws, the first one? Well, that's really true. God loved us and he has a wonderful plan for us. His plan started way before we were ever born, but God knew we would be born and he knew we needed Christ and he gave us Christ. And now we can realize his mercy and his grace that God was wise, that he, was, he, had, he, he had discernment and understanding. And Paul says he made known to us the mystery of his will. It's, it's a mystery. Why would God love us so much? But this mystery is something that just isn't 
readily understandable to us, but it's his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ. Because in Christ, there was a plan that God was ready to bring about during the days that Jesus was here, both so that he could put everything under the feet of Christ, both the things in heaven and on earth, all come and coalesce together in Christ. That's what we have. We have this marvelous God who gave us his son to pay the penalty for our sins, to give us forgiveness of our sins, and to make it possible for us to come back into his family. But the point is, God did this from the very get-go, the very, no matter how we think about God, no matter if we even, if people out there don't even believe that there is a God, we believe and we understand the scriptures to testify that that's wrong. There is a God and he had a plan from the very beginning and the plan was to give his son through God's mercy and grace to die on the cross for our sins. That's an amazing God. You know, he could have many times just swept away the Israelites and I guess just throw us into the fires of hell. And yet at the same time, he, he loved us enough to give Jesus. So Paul says, you know what? One of the things we have in him, in whom, in him we have redemption. Number two, in him we have inheritance. We have inheritance as well. Well, what's the inheritance do? Let's look in verse 11 and 12. Paul says, in him, there's that phrase again, in whom or in him, we also, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of the wills, of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. So what happens here is that this word inheritance means that the lot is cast that we've been set apart to get part of the glories and the riches of God. That's what an inheritance is. You know, you go and you inherit from somebody, you're set apart, you're identified as a beneficiary. Well, we've become beneficiaries of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has, and he has dominion over all the world. And we're part of God's family. We've, we've been recognized as being part of his family. The church exists to be that physical embodiment of the body of Christ. We talk about this a lot in our theological terms that we are the body of Christ. The building, I mean, let's, say, let's face it, people can make sacred cows out of all kinds of things whether it's the style of different things or the color of different things or the way you do different things. All of those are physical things, but they're not really our inheritance. They're not really the glory of God. The glory of God is Jesus Christ. I've been in churches that met in a very, um, in, a, in a storefront and praise there is wonderful. I actually went to a mission church, Tammy and I, back in, Cincinnati when we first moved there and they met in an odd fellows hall and they had to get there early in the morning to get rid of all the beer cans and and sweep up all the junk that was there from the Saturday night before and we had church there the place where you where you worship isn't so very important but it's who you worship 
and how we recognize and see him. He's a God who loved us. And he gave us his son Jesus on the cross to redeem us. And we get to partake in that. We get to have that inheritance. Because Jesus said, I'm with you always. His teaching is going to help us to be successful in life. To know how to navigate everything that matters for time and eternity. There are lots of things that we think are so very important that don't matter. A hill of beans for time and eternity. But Jesus begins to teach us what does matter for time and eternity. And we get that. We inherit it. We receive it. Because God in his great mystery and his great love for us poured this out for us and we received this, this inheritance. We were predestined or we were uh, uh, predetermined to uh, participate in the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the pur purpose of his will. So all of us can put our hope in Christ, as we put our hope in Christ, we might be able to praise him and see God's glory because, you know, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, it didn't end there. We're moving forward to the book of Revelation. You ever gone to read a book and then looked at the end to see how it turned out? Well, if you look at Revelation, we win. So the point is we're moving in a journey. Churches are moving in that journey. I, I don't think it's bad sometimes for churches to call themselves the journey church because we're in this journey. We're doing this together. And we are called to take every step that God gives us and every breath that we have to be able to share with Christ with other people and to know that God has wonderful life, wonderful plan for us. And we can walk with him and walk with his son, Jesus Christ, because we are part of the family. Number three... There's another in whom, and this is found in your Christian Standard Bible in verse 13, in him you also. Now, this is a little bit more complicated in this text. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Paul is saying here, in him you also got the word of truth, and it was the gospel of your salvation. So, this is important to understand that what we have in Jesus is the gospel. It is the word of truth. What is true about it is that God did create the world. God was a good God. God loved us. God was, didn't destroy Adam and Eve when they sinned, but God made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins, to have redemption. Jesus paid for our penalty and have inheritance become part of his family and as a result, we have been saved. We have the word of truth. The salvation of the gospel is the word of truth. Regardless of what the world will say and argue, it's true. And the scriptures tell us that it's true, and we understand it to be true in our walk with Jesus Christ, that he does indeed give us salvation and deliverance. But... Paul doesn't stop there because salvation is certainly an important part of it. We are saved to live. Um, in fact, sometimes we think of the gospel as something you get for a time down the road. You know, I've been, I've been in church services where the pastor says, well, you got to get saved and then get up here and get dunked and then you're all set for heaven. And that seems to be the gist of the teaching. 
that they're doing. And, and that's nothing necessarily wrong. That is true, but it leaves a whole lot out. Your salvation comes the moment you ask Christ into your heart. Eternal glory, eternal life begins the moment you ask Jesus into your heart. And your salvation starts from that point on. It's an ongoing experience, an ongoing relationship and walk with Jesus Christ. So we don't have to wait, you know, until we get to go heaven to have that eternal life. We start to have it now, and I'll show you why. Paul says this, and it's really important to understand that the salvation is present and now and ongoing, and it's not saved to something later, by and by, in the heaven, I'll fly away, which is a great song we sang this morning, right? I saw the light and I'm going to fly away, but what about right now? I, I don't fly very well, so I want to walk with Jesus, and I can, and that's part of my salvation. So in the church, you are being saved and living out your salvation. And this is what Paul then goes on to say. In number four, he says, sealing. Now, this is a little bit tricky. This is verse 13 and 14. I added that. But this is a little part tricky. Um, it says in verse 13, in him you also um, heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. And then it says, and this is the fourth one, in him... The Christian Standard Bible says, in whom, or in the Christian Standard Bible says, and when you also believe. But the, Paul says in, in the Greek, he says, and in whom you also believed, when you believed, when you trusted, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So what happens is that the praise of his glory is when Jesus returns and Jesus is going to become the king of all of the world and rule and we win. You look in Revelation. But not yet he's here. And what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, before we get to go to heaven or before Jesus returns, we've got what? We've got the down payment. We've got the earnest money. I like the King James as his earnest other versions will say earnest. People don't know what earnest money is. Earnest money is when you go to purchase something, but you don't have the whole amount. You give them that earnest money saying, I'm going to come back at such such a time and pay you the rest and take possession of the thing I'm paying you for. We most, most of the time know it if you want to buy a house or even a car or something, you have to come with a down payment. A down payment is a certain percentage of it that shows you are serious and you have a right to purchase that thing. But Paul uses that idea to say, look, when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he was God's down payment. So that you know it's true, so that you have a hope so that you know God is going to make good on his mystery, his love, his grace, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment, as a, another paraclete, another, another part of the Trinity. Jesus said another comforter is going to come. It's the Holy Spirit, and he's going to walk beside us and guide us and point us to Jesus and lead us, and he comforts us and encourages us, and we have life in God through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, God the Father, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see the point? Paul is saying, look, we have redemption, we have inheritance, and we have salvation, but the Holy Spirit is our seal, the mark that we get. The seal means to have a mark, to provide a seal as a security measure, or to close up something tight and seal it. To mark with a seal as a means of identifying we belong to God, to certify that something is true. The Holy Spirit certifies that the gospel is true. And the Holy Spirit is also marking us for delivery. We are his. And one day we'll go to meet him. Whether God tarries in sending the Son and we lay ourselves down in the old corruptible bodies that we have out there in the cemetery or somewhere else, or Jesus comes to meet us in the air, we are already marked to be his through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to God that we are his. And the Holy Spirit teaches us how we can serve the Lord Jesus, the beloved, God's son. So what do we have in Jesus? We have all these things. I know it's a big, long theological thing, but if God exists, people, some people don't believe that he does, but if he does, is he a good God? Yes. Is he a God who cared about his creation? Yes. He made us in his image. And what happened when we sinned against him? Well, God made it possible for us to have an inheritance, redemption and inheritance and a salvation and the Holy Spirit to live with us. If you want to know how this is so, you can ask the Lord, ask God to show you. <coughs> you could try that. You can challenge God. God, if you're really there, show me that you're there. God, if, you re if all this is true, show me the truth. And you let God show you. And let the Holy Spirit speak to you because the Holy Spirit will convict our hearts that all this is true. This is the word of truth. And this is what we have as a church. <clears throat> we, you know, I know that it's important to talk about our needs. Well, I need someone to help me do this and to be part of this support group and that part of that support group. And that's important. That's what the church does. We help each other. But the essential truth of the church is what we have in Jesus. And that's where we begin. Because in Jesus, we have all those other helps. In the Holy Spirit, we have God's love for us and the power of God and the Holy Spirit to help us become what God wants us to be. But first we have to see that it is God's wonderful and holy and, and just marvelous plan. This word ministry <clears throat> can mean this just a marvelous, who would have thought this? Who would have worked this out? None other than God that he gave Jesus on the cross for our sins. And that's what's so amazing about our Savior. That's why we can honor him and adore him and affirm his presence because he's so marvelous. Jesus did this, obedient to God to go to the cross, and we can tell people. If we want to be an essential church, it's because we, we share this gospel message. <clears throat> and this gospel message never grows old, and it never is uh, really third or fourth tier down in the scheme of things. It's what really matters for time and eternity. And we need to share our, with our world that Jesus did this. So if people ask you, what do you have in Jesus? What are you going to tell them? 
Well, we have a God who is marvelous and wonderful, and in His grace, He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we, part, we can be part of His church, and we can grow, and we can give Him glory and honor. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then I challenge you to find out whether this is true. Paul says it's the word of truth. Is Paul right? Then study the Bible. Talk to God. See if you can affirm that he's there. If you don't believe that he's there, give him a chance to show you that he's here. If you have friends, neighbors, relatives who don't know if God exists, then share with them what you have in Jesus. This is a way that we can witness, we can testify. We can help them understand what God was doing for all of these time, all this time to give us his mercy and grace. If you do know the Lord Jesus and you want to be part of an essential church, then we challenge you as we receive church members to come forward. If you've never been baptized, we'll baptize you. If you, if you haven't made a profession of faith, we'll share with you what it means to come to know the Lord. You won't, can't become a church member until you know, we know that, and, and, and that's what we want the Holy Spirit to do in your heart. But if you're part of the church, but God is calling you to some type of Christian service or vocation, then let the church know. This is an opportunity to say, hey, pray for me. Maybe you just want to rededicate yourself where you are in the pew as we sing and as we share together in the worship song as we, as we finish. I'm going to stand down here in the front. Musicians come, and I'm going to stand down here in the front and be here during this invitation if you'll respond as the Lord leads you. Let's stand and sing our closing song. <laughs>